They trot out their stupidities, and we follow. That's Martha Gellhorn. Uh, we either follow or we don't follow. It's 1983 and she's furiously smoking a cigarette. Uh, those who follow the cruel stupidities are the tigers. Um, those who allow themselves to be led to the slaughter are the sheep. But the stupidity starts at the top and then we all get it. We all... We all sort of get it by osmosis. Gellhorn was one of the 20th century's best war correspondents. She was smart, she was tough, she was principled. And the Spanish Civil War, a subject so massive in scope that one could get lost in it faster than a six-mile hedgerow maze, was the first conflict she covered. This is Ernest Hemingway. Gellhorn headed to Spain after meeting Ernest Hemingway. And we were waiting for the first of the other two who wasn't a very good reporter, and at the time, wasn't a very good novelist. He never came, but while we waited, I wrote the play. But Hemingway needed to have his romanticism crushed in order to write one of his many masterpieces, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Where do the noses go? <laughs> always I wonder where the noses go. My name is Edward Champion, and this is The Bat Segundo Show. Gellhorn and Hemingway are just two of the figures included in Amanda Vale's marvelous new book, Hotel Florida. The others include the celebrated photographer Robert Capa and Arturo Barria. This ragtag group of crusaders was determined to aid the Loyalists. The Loyalists had democratically elected the Spanish Republic until General Franco organized this rebel nationalist group and the Loyalists were losing swiftly to Franco's conservatives. This was to change not only the trajectory of Spain, but the future of worldwide culture. Okay, so I am here with Amanda Vale, who is most recently the author of Hotel Florida. Amanda, how are you doing? It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to be talking to you. Yes, well, you're, you're doing okay, I, I take it. Except for my broken finger. Oh, you broke your finger, yes. Yes, I did. I yes. had one of those household accidents. I and, tripped over my shoes. And, of course, it's the right hand. Of course as it opposed is. To the left so that hand. I yeah. cannot write, <laughs> and I cannot shake hands, and I cannot sign my name, except that it is getting better, so I can now do that. Although you have a good shot of taking over Spain. Uh, anyway. I hope so. The Spanish Civil War. We have many characters and many figures, and I'll do my best to get to all of them. But uh, let's start with good old Robert Capa. One of the fascinating and oft-argued issues in photography is, of course, Robert Capa's falling soldier, the picture of the militiamen on the Andalusian hill falling to his death in battle. Uh, some have contended that it is fake. Some have contended that it is real. Some uh, have, uh, as you have, tried tracking down interviews. You tried to find an NBC radio interview with Alex Kershaw on October 20th, 1947, in which Capa claimed to have killed the miliciano. Uh, but the purported truth of the story behind the photo is almost as murky as the purported truth of the photo, which in turn has us contending with the purported truth of the war. So how do we even begin to come to terms with the photo in terms of scholarship, in terms of authenticity, and how does the struggle affect our ability to wrestle with the complexities and the ideological involutions of the Spanish Civil War, just to start off here? Well, that, I could write a whole dissertation on that, uh -huh. I think, and people have. Uh, but I think, let's start, first of all, with... Um, with the word fake, uh, which is a... Staged. Let us, yes, there is a big, big difference. Something that is faked is in some way manipulated uh, so that something that is not true can be made to be true. Uh, something that is staged is something that is perhaps not 
quite as extreme as something that is faked. And you have to bear in mind that in 1936, when this photograph was taken, there was no history of war photography at all. Yeah. No one had taken uh, live action photographs on a battlefield. Matthew Brady took pictures of corpses, which he manipulated and moved around so that it looked, you know, they would be in a pose that he liked. In World War I, you couldn't go on the battlefield, you were not allowed. And furthermore, there was no equipment that you could take on there. You had big, cumbersome cameras and slow film. And it was only in the 1930s when you had um, 35 millimeter film and cameras that could accommodate it that you could take your camera onto the battlefield. So there was no rule book for how you handled uh, photography in wartime and no one was used to allowing photographers to be where there was combat. So when Kappa and Gerda Taro, his lover and cohort in photography, came to Spain, um, they at first were not even allowed to go onto the battlefield. They were only given access to troops behind the lines, and they tried to make them look good. But, you know, this just was not happening. They couldn't get anything that looked like real battle. And finally, um, when they were in near in the, in the area around Cordoba, on the Cordoba front, um, they had this chance to take photographs of a group of soldiers. And Kappa has told many stories about what happened and how he got this shot. Um, he was an inveterate tale teller. He was, a, he was a real entertainer, Kappa. He loved to charm and entertain people. And he felt compelled to create his own legend. He totally did. And he did. He did yeah. create, he created his name. He was born um, Andre, Andre, Erno Friedman in uh, Budapest. And so he created the whole persona of Robert Kappa, the famous war photographer, um, or the famous photographer. And he, um, he created not just that, but this, this uh, legend of himself that he felt perhaps compelled to live up to. In 1936, I remember, he's 22 years old. He's just a kid. He doesn't know what he's doing, really. And it is my belief, based on interviews, they aren't even interviews, conversations that he had with those close to him, at times when, in fact, he was not on um, the interview that I or the conversation that I'm trying that I base most of my reconstruction of this incident on is one that was with a friend. He wasn't trying to entertain this person. He wasn't showing off for uh, an interviewer. He was confessing something, and what he confessed was that a real man had been killed by something he had done, and he was conscience-stricken about it, which is the kind of thing that really squares with the, the portrait that I received of Kappa, that Kappa was a very kind, very generous, um, very loving person, and, and easily hurt by things, and didn't want to give pain to others, and that this thing had happened, I think was horrifying to him. Since we are talking about various artists who came to Spain and essentially either set themselves up as legends or became legends later. Uh, let's move naturally into Ernest Hemingway. Oh, well. Um, for all of his bluster about being a real man and a real journalist, he didn't actually cover Guernica 
uh, in April 1937, and he didn't mention this devastating battle in his dispatches from Spain. Virginia Coles, on the other hand, she headed into the nationalist zone and not only covered it, but did so when a nationalist staff officer said, you probably shouldn't be writing about this. So you write in the book that Hemingway may not have thought this important enough, but why do you think he ignored it? Uh, was he just not that thorough of a reporter? Well, actually, I hate to say this, but he wasn't that thorough a reporter. Um, for all that he had a great background as a gumshoe reporter back in the day when he was at the Kansas City Star and when he was in Toronto and you know he was a newspaper man and he was on the city beat and he you know was the cub reporter sent out to cover fires and God knows what all else um but by the time he went to Spain he had become a legend and he was a legend in part in his own mind as much as in the minds of others and I think he'd got to the point where what he really wanted to do was to sit at the big table with the big boys and get the big story and let somebody else worry about all the little details. Yeah. And in this case, uh, Guernica happened in the Basque country. It was in a zone that it was almost impossible for him to get to without great difficulty. But and, that didn't stop Coles. Well, it didn't. Because, of course, she was... Um, she was still building her reputation, and I think Hemingway felt he didn't have to try. I also feel that he didn't think it was that important, and he didn't think it was that important because the very contemporary news reports of it were very dismissive at first. Um, it really wasn't until people like Coles found out what had gone on there that it became evident that there had been a horrific disaster. So Hemingway just basically thought, I'm going to give this a buy. It's too much trouble. I'll risk my neck getting there. I don't need it. I'm headed out. Screw it. I will confess that your book had me finally, after many years reading to have and have not, <laughs> I had uh, been avoiding this for a long time. And as it turns out, rightfully so. Uh, brilliant in parts, terrible in others. I mean, was Hemingway just not up to snuff during this particular period? I think he was struggling, um, and I think you know many writers do. They they reach a period where they're trying to break through to some other level, and they're not comfortable. They're, the instrument isn't isn't sharp in the way that they want it to be sharp to do the work that they suddenly have decided they want to do. Um, Hemingway, after writing two extraordinarily well-received novels and amazing bunch of short stories and maybe two of his, I think, finest works, um, Snows of Kilimanjaro and Short Happy Life of Francis McComber. Um, I think he was looking to do something different. The 30s were a period of great relevance. The engagé writer uh, was what you were supposed to be, and he, he hadn't been. And even though he scoffed at a lot of this stuff and said that he didn't want to get involved in politics and he didn't want to hew to any isms of one kind or another and all he really believed in was freedom, um, he couldn't help noticing particularly when his friend John Des Passos ended yes. up on the cover of Time magazine in the summer of 1936, that writers who were writing about the big political themes were, were getting a lot of attention, the kind of attention he had always gotten. And I think he, he was looking for some way to do that and to have and have not represented 
that kind of fiction for him. But he wasn't comfortable writing it, yeah. I think. And I think that was the problem with it. I mean, speaking of Dos Passos, I felt tremendous sympathy for this poor man. I mean, he comes <laughs> uh, he comes to Spain. He's looking into the mysterious disappearance of his friend, Jose Robles Passos, and he's spurned by Hemingway. Oh, uh, I yeah. mean, basically... Hemingway is well-connected with the Loyalists, and he tells Dos Passos, don't put your mouth to this Robles business. People disappear every day, which is an extraordinarily callous statement. Um, Why did Hemingway have difficulties getting around his romantic vision of the Republicans? Why couldn't he ask the difficult questions that Dos Passos had no problem in investigating? Well, I think it goes back to Hemingway's wanting to be at the big boys' table and and play with... And he was. And he was. And it's, you know, we've seen some of this same problem with journalists in our own day of... (laughs) The New York Times is Judith Miller, for example, and other writers uh, writing about our involvement in the Iraq war, they wanted to just take the story that somebody wanted to hand them out because that person was well-connected and high up on in the tree. And that trumps any journalistic integrity. And Or any journalistic, um, uh, I, I think it would be doubt, just the feeling that, oh, wait, maybe skepticism. I shouldn't take this story. The skepticism there. Your, skeptic, your skepticism instrument is just not working when that happens. It's lulled into some false quiescence by all of this access that you suddenly have. And I think that's... That's really what happened to Hemingway here. He was, he was so in love with the access he had, and he was so taken up with his passionate uh, identification with the with the cause of the Spanish Republic, which I, you know, I can certainly understand. It was they were the democratically elected government of Spain, and a bunch of right wingers wanted to nullify an election and just take things back to the way they were before. So in order to get over the crest for whom the bell tolls, absolute masterpiece, he had to be, he had to go through all this needless romance and this blinkered yeah, viewpoint, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and then he had to have his and heart crushed. And then he had to be, yeah. disillu- he had to be disillusioned. And I think, you know, the problem for him was, exactly, he he did have his heart broken in a way. Um, and And for whom the bell tolls came out of that feeling of disillusionment. He, he called not just what had happened to the Republic, but also what happened at Munich. Uh, it was the whole thing, and, and the, the, the dismissal of the international brigades from Spain. All of that to him was what he called a carnival of treachery on both sides. And, you know, that's pretty strong language. I don't want to keep this a boys' club scenario. I, let's talk about Martha Gellhorn. Oh, yeah. I found this amazing interview with her by John Pilger in 1983, and she basically condemns government as the enemy of the people. It's a marvelous interview. And she's sitting there just totally smoking up the storm. I'm sure you've seen this. Um, you know, how much of Gellhorn's politics were there before the Spanish Civil War? She was brought up to be, um, you know, a progressive, a liberal. Her mother was a great women's rights crusader in St. Louis and a friend of Eleanor Roosevelt. Her father was a really um, liberal-thinking guy. He was a gynecologist who believed in, uh, you know, the closest thing to women's reproductive rights that they had back then. How did she he become, was, well, back up here, how did she become friends with Eleanor Roosevelt? Well, well, Mrs. Edna Gellhorn, yeah. Martha's mother, was, you know, they were all involved in women's suffrage movements. And Eleanor, you know, was one of these very friendly women. She believed that those she'd sort of walked shoulder to shoulder with in the struggle, they were her friends. And I would like to say, you know, Martha was one of these people who was extremely good at maximizing any kind of uh, contact 
advantage that she had. She managed to parlay her acquaintance with Eleanor. She was a networker. She was a brilliant networker. I mean... And some would argue that she networked her way into Hemingway's bed. Well, (laughs) some people might say that. I mean, you know, perhaps it was an accident that he discovered her in Slobby Joe's in Key West that Christmas. Yeah. Uh, We'll we'll let the biographers argue over that. We'll let them do that. (laughs) Um, But she she was really good at doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also wanted to ask you, I mean, speaking of this, there is this extraordinary um, uh, article that she writes, Justice by Night, in which she describes a Mississippi lynching, and it was praised for its vivacity, even though she made the whole thing up. Yeah. Um, She didn't actually witness it. It was the product of her imagination. She actually even confessed this to her confidant, Eleanor Roosevelt. Hey, I actually blew it. This leads me to ask, especially since we're talking about journalistic integrity in our present age of Joan Alera and Jason Blair, (laughs) well, you know, how was Gellhorn able to get away with this? Is it similar to what besieged Kappa? What did Eleanor Roosevelt have to say about this? And why was she permitted to report on the Spanish Civil War if people knew that she totally faked this, fake again, this Mississippi lynching. Well, Gellhorn had a wonderful way of sort of scooting out from under responsibility for this um, this article. She wrote it in a hurry. She wrote it in part to kind of show H.G. Wells, with whom she had been staying as a house guest in London, that she could she could write seriously. And she she wasn't just a sort of social gadabout and spending all of her time going to nightclubs when she was in London. She would sit down and write something. And so she sat down and wrote this story. And, Which, and Wells challenged her to write, too. Absolutely. And so he, she wrote this, and he was so impressed by it that he sent it around to his agent and to a bunch of um, magazine editors, and it got bought. And by this time, Martha had left London. She'd gone off to Europe to start work on a novel that never ended up happening about pacifists in the interwar period. And she claimed that she had no... Uh, responsibility for the fact that this piece was published or, you know, in a sense, somehow she just, you know, oh, it was an accident. How did that happen? I didn't mean for it to be published at all. She did cash the checks. So, you know, I presume she, she, she can take responsibility for the fact that she was paid for it. She got into trouble when, in fact, um, a man who was uh, running hearings in the U.S. Congress about lynching, wanted her to come and testify about this. And she couldn't do that because she would have had to swear an oath that it was the truth. And it wasn't. And the sort of embarrassing part was that a lot of the contact between um, Wright, the man who had done the, um, the, who was doing the hearings and, and her and the article came through Eleanor Roosevelt. It was Eleanor Roosevelt who passed the article along and sort of pointed it out to yeah. to um, the man running the hearing. So, so Gellhorn had to tell Eleanor that it wasn't real. And she did so in the most extraordinary letter that you, you read it and, and she sort of tries to carry the whole thing off with bravado. Well, you know, this thing happened, and I really, I must be a very bad liar because, you know, this whole thing is made up, and blah, blah, blah. She tries to be very charming about it, and she is very charming about it. You can tell that she's talking really fast to try to, you know, keep the ball in the air and not let it fall down and have not people... Not blow this contact. And not have people ask questions about, how did you actually do this? 
And unfortunately, I was unable to find any response from Eleanor. And, you know, it is not, which is not to say that the letter from Roosevelt doesn't exist somewhere. I just never found it. Or Eleanor was discreet to give her a dressing down either in person or on the phone or something. But, you know, there's no... I don't didn't find any record of her response. So, so what was their relationship after this? They continued to be friendly. Uh, when when Ernest Hemingway and Martha um, were screening a film that Hemingway had made in Spain in 1937 the called Spanish The Earth. Spanish Earth, um, Eleanor Roosevelt and Franklin invited them to screen it at the White House. Well, actually, Martha. Martha was actually billed by Hemingway as the girl who fixed it for us to show this film at the White House. Right. And that's that was it. I mean, yeah. she still was able to make things happen with Eleanor right up until they were friends until well, well, well into, well, forever, as long as Eleanor was alive. Even though um, Martha ended up in the 1940s, I think it was, having an affair with a man that um, Eleanor had been sort of in love with. Yeah. But nothing at all in relation to this faked article nothing. from Eleanor. No. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Maybe she was used to faking doc- fake documents in the... <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? I, you know, the thing is that she... And, and late in her life, too, she, she gave sort of conflicting stories about how this had come about and what had happened. Um, she basically did try to make out like the the burden of responsibility lay with the editors who'd published it. Why didn't they check with me? I would have told them. Yeah. And, you know, you do think, well, but you wrote Face it. Face-saving here. <laughs> anyway. Well, I, it, it took Henry Luce at life for, <laughs> for Robert Kappa to get the space and attention that he needed, both with his photographs and also with the March in Time documentary. Uh, as you point out, he captures the beginning of the fall of Bilbao to the nationalists. I, I'm wondering, do you think that if Luce had given Kappa resources earlier that his photographs could have actually helped the loyalists? Could, that's, that's an interesting yeah. idea. I don't, I don't, I just don't know. I mean, you mentioned Luce and I laughed because the thing that, that came up in my mind immediately was Please Henry Luce's great, great line about his March of Time documentaries, which, speaking of staged, they were, com- <laughs> many of them completely yes. set up and they were reenactments with, you know, it, all, complete with sometimes even actors in them. And they were, he, Luce referred to them as fakery in allegiance <laughs> to the truth. I think it's one of the great remarks ever. And you know, so I, it, I think about that. Life, I don't think Life magazine was fakery and allegiance to the truth. It was pretty, it hewed to a pretty tough journalistic standard. But it does beg the question of what in this time was even real in terms of the coverage of the Spanish Civil War. Well, I guess it does. Although one of the things that's interesting about Capa and Taro is that really starting from the falling soldier moment and going forward, neither of them is comfortable with the idea of staging anything. Yeah. They are they are desperate to get to where things are really happening. And you you see that I mean, when Goethe Tarot takes photographs in the morgue, there are these amazing pictures of dead bodies and blood pooling on the floor. And you realize that she's standing right over them. Yeah, yeah. And there are pictures that Kappa took in battle where he's, you can see people getting shot and you realize, oh, Yes, there are bullets going around all around us, and there's smoke from the battle, and there's there's cordite, and there's explosions going on, and you realize the cop is right there. So, but you also describe this moment with Tara, where she comes back from her first witnessing of 
of, of battle on the, on the front lines, and she's absolutely mortified and terrified. Uh, but then, you know, near the end, she's standing up in the trenches, oh, yeah. very brave, very valiantly, taking photographs no matter what. And, and of course, this would eventually lead to her extremely sad death, even despite yeah. the fact that she was extraordinarily courageous. You know, how did she build up that level of courage? What was it? And and this also begs the question of, well, uh, if she actually, uh, you know, was so enthralled with uh, the prospect of photography, what effect did this have on her view of the war, her, her compunction, her empathy, that kind of thing? Well, she was herself a very committed anti-fascist. I mean, she was a Jew, as Kaba was. They saw the handwriting on the wall. They knew it was going to happen. And they were... They felt like Spain was the sort of front line against Hitler, as many people did. So, you know, yeah, she's, uh, she's definitely um, involved on a political level, on an ideological level. Um, and she f- so her, her principles are involved here. And, and they, she's not going to go take pictures of how terrible things are for the nationalists, what sad things they're having. I mean, she didn't even want to go there. I, in fact, she probably couldn't have gotten accredited on the nationalist side. Yeah. And one of the things that has to be said, and I actually didn't go into this too much in this book, is that journalists on the nationalist side were were very much constrained in terms of what they could do and what they could photograph and what could they could say and what they could where they could go. Um, access was strictly limited. So they really were censored in ways that ultimately the those on the the government side were not. Yeah, but to, to go back to my original question about Henry Luce and uh, and Kappa, I, I'm wondering if any amount of uh, journalism or photography or art could have diverted the fate of Spain uh, in the in the late 1930s. Well, you know, I think if if those photographs and the journalism had managed somehow to melt hearts in the Western democracies so that they had loosened up and given Spain a bit more help um, to fight the insurgents. It might have made a difference. Which, you know, basically, Britain and France and the United States were all bound up by this non-intervention pact. Nobody wanted to go near another war after World War One. I. I mean, they'd lost way too many people and way too much money, and they just didn't want to do it. I mean, arguably, that is one of the reasons why Hitler got where he got, was that nobody wanted to mess with them because they just didn't want to force the issue. So, you know, that was obviously one of the problems, and... Um, and there was terrible isolationism in this country where there might have been monetary resources to help them. Um, on the other hand, you're dealing with, on the Spanish side, a really disorganized government, um, a government that was, to begin with, though it was a nominally socialist, was made up of a huge array of different left-wing parties. And, and as no, we all know, <laughs> there's, you, you, you listen, have yourself a bit of a fracas there. Yeah. You totally do. And in the end, the whole thing fell apart in part. They started fighting with each other. Yeah. There was what so many people call the civil war within the civil war. Yes. And this, of course, never happened on the right. They were pretty much... In uh, solidarity. They stayed on yeah. message pretty much all the way through. Yeah. Uh, you know, Arturo Baria, who we haven't actually mentioned yet, of all the figures in 
the book, he seems to be the one who's the true late bloomer because he doesn't actually get to the forging of a rebel until he's until Spain is over. And I'm wondering, you know, uh, what? How did his role as the unknown voice of, of Madrid over the radio help him find the confidence to write this multi-volume memoir? Well, I think you know this is a man who wanted to be a writer. He was born in poverty in Madrid, and you know in Spain you've got a very stratified society. So if you're just the son of a laundry woman who does washes soldiers' shirts in the in the Manzanares River, um, you, you are not going to be hanging out in literary cafes and schmoozing with the great and the near great. And this is indeed what happened to him. He had to go to work when he was 14 years old. Um, he never got to go to university. He never got to do any of the things he wanted to do. But he did go to engineering school, ultimately learn how to be a patent engineer, and he made himself good money doing this. Then the war came, and he wanted to be on the side of the government. He wanted to help them out. And because by sort of an accident, he spoke French because yeah. he spent some time in France, and because he had interest in words and inevitably sort of a gift for them, interest in them, gift for them, uh, he ended up in the press office. And then Franco is besieging Madrid. The government flees to Valencia, and um, he is left holding the fort all by himself. And out of this came this extraordinary experience and the need not only to work with journalists and help them massage their copy into ways that would make it acceptable to uh, the government to to have it be printed, but also to tell the truth. Not only does he do that, working with these journalists, he also um, begins broadcasting, writing his own pieces to be broadcast. And out of this comes this voice. Um, the war gave him the material I wouldn't say the confidence because this poor guy, he was suffering from, you know, the worst kind of post-traumatic stress. So I don't know how much confidence he had in anything, but but he he got somehow the feeling that that writing was the only way he could save himself. That if he wrote about something, it was like a life raft. It might carry him out of the situation. Is there something about suppressing information that causes one in the case of Baria to really actually tell it like it is. Well, you know, he didn't he didn't want to suppress information. I and mean, the guy he has his job, he's supposed to be the censor. The government says don't let anything out that tells anything bad about anything and he thinks this is nuts. You know, how how would you do that? Why would you not tell the world? how bad it is here because maybe then they'll they'll get real and send us some they'll send some help to yeah, us yeah. maybe they'll understand why we're having so much trouble so that's you know his passion his crusade becomes tell the truth tell the truth and um you know so so i think that's where really where the where where the impetus comes he's so busy trying to figure out how to tell the truth that he does I want to actually talk about some of the uh, artistic aspects of this book, uh, namely the fact that, well, your book is, as I dived through the end notes, as I do with all these kinds of books, meticulously sourced, but I wonder how you approach this idea of artistic license. How can we possibly know the precise words that floated through someone's head or through someone's mouth? Only if they mention it. Yeah. And fortunately for me, um, I'm dealing here with journalists and novelists. And uh, egotists. <laughs> and egotists who, you know, have the 2020 hindsight, or so they believe, for events in their past. And they set them down in much more detail than, you know, if you were 
a shoe salesman and you were in Madrid during the war, you probably would remember things about shoes, but you probably would not remember lots and lots and lots of things about the way people spoke, what they said, what they ate, how they smelled, um, you know, what they sounded like. But these writers, that's their bread and butter. This is what they do. So they remember all this stuff. They write it down. They leave it either in letters or in diaries or in autobiographies or memoirs or something. And then I get to read them and pick up all the details and dump them into my book. But what ground rules do you establish in terms of how far you can stray away from the established facts? Well, I don't stray away from established facts. I mean, as far as I can, I mean, I certainly, I'm not aware that I did so. Um, And I try very hard to double source or triple source as anywhere that I possibly can. There's, for instance, there's a whole scene um, in the book. I keep using this in sort of novel, there are very novelistic terms, scene, character. I keep using these when I talk about them because they are very live to me. There is a scene in this book in which um, the executioner of Madrid, um, a guy called Quintanilla, is having lunch in the basement restaurant of the Hotel Gran Via with Hemingway and Josephine Herbst and Virginia Kells. And they're all having lunch together. Now, Virginia Kyles remembered this story, Josephine Herbst remembered this story, and Hemingway wrote about it in a play. Yes. So I had three sources, and I took wherever it overlapped, I felt on very firm ground. Every place else, I tried to make the best possible use of the material and the most, um, what do I want to say, The, the most believable, the most correct, the most unimaginable. You know, I try not to make anything up. I think that's really, I mean, I didn't. I well, made, sure. You know, but, I when, but when you're dealing with something like the Spanish Civil War, yeah. which propaganda is the default state oh, yeah. on both sides, yeah, you yeah. know, what do you do to ensure that actually it's true? If if, if, if it could be, if, if it's something as malleable as a capital Well, photo, what is truth? Yeah, Asked yeah. jesting pilot and did not stay for an answer. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I You do the best you can, I think. That's really, I think the issue is you look for a double source or more every time you can. You look to you look to demolish um, alibis. You don't look to or reinforce or reinforce them. I set up when I was writing this book. I set up a timeline for every single character. I use that word again. There you go. Every single person, subject. Well, I, they're all dead, so we can call them characters. All, well, <laughs> and across the top, it was every single month in the period of which I am writing. And I put down all of the incidents that each of them remembered in each little pane so that wherever possible, I would have a corroborating piece of evidence for any story that I wanted yeah. to repeat. Now, it was not always possible to do this. Um, for instance, for Barea, who is writing an autobiography, again, recollected, I wouldn't say in tranquility, but after the war or after he's not in Spain anymore. Um, A lot of what he reports, I don't have secondary or other sources for, and I basically have to take it as much on faith as I can. But, you know, again, you can source it against history. You can look to see what historical documents tell you, what newspapers tell you. That's what I did. Yeah. 
I, I, we had mentioned the Spanish Earth before, and I do want to get into some of the documentary films that actually sprung up in relation to the Spanish Civil War. My understanding from your endnotes is that no current print actually exists of Spain on Flames. This was the documentary film that Archibald McLeish and Joris Evans uh, hoped would draw attention to the Spanish Civil War. Um, the question I have is why didn't this film survive? didn't have any real impact, or was this kind of overshadowed by the follow-up film, The Spanish Earth? Well, you know, Spain in Flames, as far as one can tell from the um, press surrounding it, when we don't have a print, it was it, it was a compendium. They, they made it up. It's a mashup of a lot of other documentary footage. A lot of it uh, was Cardin's beautiful, you know, he was a Russian yeah. uh, filmmaker who did some many, many wonderful... Uh, documentary films about Spain in this period. And uh, so they used some of his stuff. They used other things. So it's probable that pieces of this film survive in other formats, in other reels, under another name. So, you know, maybe the maybe Spain in Flames does actually exist, but there is no actual print of the movie. I don't know what... We just don't know whatever happened to it. In, In fact, the Spanish Earth which was a, from the get-go, scripted and film, purpose-filmed, or mostly purpose-filmed movie, documentary. Even that, um, all, there is a, a good print of it. There's actually several. There's one at the Museum of Modern Art. But there is a very interesting, complicated ownership situation for this film. Oh. Because it was commissioned by an organization founded by Archibald MacLeish called yeah. Contemporary Historians. And the idea was that they would make – it was a, an organization put together to make this movie yeah. and to raise money to make this movie and to distribute it. In the end, Contemporary Historians was dissolved – its assets appear, but it may not have been properly dissolved, according to the Attorney General of the State of New York. Really? Its assets were never distributed. No. Um, it's basically an orphan entity. Yeah, it's an orphan, and there no accommodation was ever made for the rights that were posed in it, for instance, uh, for the Spanish Earth. Wow. Uh, Lillian Hellman, who was tangentially involved in this, as in so many other things, Miss um, Hellman decided that it would be a good idea to let the royalties for the film, such as they might be, go to Joris Evans, the director. And indeed, I believe that for some time they did flow to him, but there was no legal document. There was no legal document. It was document informal, that made basically. It was totally informal. And at this point, there's just no one knows who owns this stuff. So guess what is up on YouTube? And you can look at it on there. The whole thing. I, I plan to. I didn't get a chance to, but I definitely <laughs> want to. Uh, there's also this great anecdote. I love this. This brawl between Orson Welles and Ernest Hemingway during the voiceover recording sessions. Oh, yeah. Uh, Welles has his own ideas about how to fix the uh, narration that Hemingway had written. Uh, it's not exactly a, uh, a commercial. This <laughs> is come decades later. But it is enough to piss... Hemingway off. Uh, there's also the fight between Hemingway and Max Eastman, uh, <laughs> <laughs> where Hemingway replies to Eastman's New Republic review of, of the bullfighting book. Uh, and basically, in that review, Eastman attacked Hemingway for wearing false hair on the chest. And so, guess who buttons down in Maxwell Perkins' office as Eastman is there? Hemingway slaps Eastman across the face with his open book, and a brawl just erupts out. Th- this leads me to wonder how did 
the woman, first and foremost, contend with all this tough guy ego boosting from Hemingway, and why was it so tolerated at the time? Well, you know, everybody, you got to remember, this is a period when everybody is stewed all the time. These people make... The, the guys in Mad Men look like teetotalers. <laughs> they are drinking so much that you cannot even believe it. So I think they were basically all of them wasted all the time. And I believe that this famous Eastman brawl occurred after lunch. So let's just remember <laughs> that and in the summer, and you know what happens to your body in the summer <laughs> when there is no air conditioning. It just metabolizes yeah. all that booze. It just goes right into oh, wherever. So, so Hemingway comes in after lunch, having gotten himself totally sauced over lunch. And, um, you know, there is Max Eastman who has accused him of the literary equivalent of wearing false hair in his chest. And he just smacks him with an open book and then they're rolling around on the floor in Max Perkins's office. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And that was actually one of these things where there was a letter from Perkins about it. There was a letter from Hemingway about it. And there was a newspaper article about it. And, oh, and also something in The New Yorker. It was a multiply sourced scene. And I kept thinking, I can't even believe it. What joy it is to have all this stuff multiply sourced. I don't know what the women thought of it. I, you know, I think... Certainly in the case of Martha Gellhorn, she's she's the kind of woman, she likes to hang out with the guys. And so she goes along to the bar with them. And, you know, they're all getting drunk with her, only she's probably not drunk. Yeah. Um, there is one, I'll use the word again, there's a scene in uh, my book where she and Hemingway are having dinner with um, uh, Lillian Hellman and um, the New York Times correspondent, Herbert Matthews, yeah. and the Daily Mail correspondent, Sefton Delmer. And again, a great deal of red wine has been drunk. And then they get really mad, and Hemingway starts yelling at Gellhorn and saying bad things about her, which he would do. And they both of them start fighting, and they're walking down the street on opposite sides of the street and yelling at each other. And, you know, then they go back to their hotel, and before you know it, they're in bed together. I don't know, you know, it's... Yeah. You never know. Well, you know, I, I was I'm a, I'm a bit of fan of George Seldes ever since I accidentally discovered him in the library in college and like, who is this guy? And then of course there's a documentary, and I think he gets a terrible rap in your book, or at least he's, he's just no one likes him at the Spanish Civil War. Why is that? Martha didn't like him, yeah. and I, you know, the fact is, I. I love George Seldes. Yeah. I think he's a great, great correspondent. And unfortunately... And needlessly forgotten. You know, I, I didn't have the space to give some time to him well, any more I, than I, I really I did to Henry I, Buckley. And I, I understand. For my but, money, yeah. those two guys were the ones who really had yeah. the scoop about what was going on in Spain. They were smart. They were honest. They were principled. And they were not... They tried really hard not to let bias overtake them, which is, I think, in, certainly in the case of Seldes, what got him in hot water with, with Gellhorn, because she really did believe that, you know, you should not just walk the walk, but you should talk the talk. <laughs> Maybe because he was actually too good of a journalist, he wasn't as good of a subject for a biographer <laughs> or a historian. Oh, I don't know. His, his you know, <laughs> yes, he was a he great was very man. dutiful and, and diligent in his, in his, in his work. Um, actually, while we're talking about legends as well, I mean, who is chiefly responsible for this legend of Martha Gellhorn taking only a duffel and backpack to Spain. Uh, you include several moments of her shopping, and that reminded me of the whole infamous Joan Didion going to the mall during the Salvador conflict in 1982, <laughs> uh, which Leslie Jameson has recently roasted in, a, in an essay in the empathy exams. Uh, we do know there are photos of Gellhorn with a wardrobe far exceeding 
what would actually be in her luggage. So to what degree did Martha Gellhorn enjoy nice things, and did this ever get in the way of her covering the conflict? Because in many cases, as we were establishing earlier, Virginia Cole seems to have done a far better job reporting. Well, and let us be said that Ms. Coles also went into battle with a pair of gold bracelets on her arms and very uh-huh. high heels, yeah. which she writes about in her own book. Uh, she's out there in the Harama battlefield, and some general takes exception to the fact that she's wearing these terrible shoes, and then says, oh, you're going to walk over there, uh, you know, and she says, but I, but my shoes. And he says, if you're here for the story, you're going to walk. So she goes, okay. And she does. So that was, that was Virginia. Um, and who became, by the way, a good pal of Martha's. Yeah. Um, the two of them wrote a play together down the line, um, which is quite amusing and was just recently revived by the Mint Theater in New York. And I hardly recommend it to anybody who uh, wants to read a funny play about women correspondence in wartime. But um, Martha, Martha and her clothes. Well, I think you asked who was responsible for this story, and I would say probably Martha was the one who was responsible for it because in the years after all of this was long in the past, when she was living in London and she had sort of a coterie of young journalists who hung around her and were sort of like her acolytes, um, she would love to regale them with stories of her past. And I think, you know, at that point, she became a little bit romantic about how she portrayed her journey to Spain. And I think they, in turn, romanticized what she told them. Yeah. So this legend grew up that she had just taken this little duffel bag and this little knapsack and, in some stories, walked across the border into Spain. And so everybody starts thinking that she's hiking over the Pyrenees like the International Brigaders, and this is the farthest thing from the truth. As she herself wrote in her own diary of Spain, uh, she took the train to where the European gauge runs out, and then she crossed the platform to the side where the Spanish gauge takes over and got on that train, and that's as much walking as she did on that trip. She had, because she was traveling alone, um, it appears from Sidney Franklin's um, reminiscences, and Sid Franklin was the American matador who was Hemingway's factotum and kind of man of all work. Um, Sid Franklin had been deputed to meet her in Paris and kind of help do stuff with her and get her sorted out and on the road to Spain. And he says that he took all of her bags. Now, that is not necessarily true because... He might have not gone on the... We're not sure exactly about Sid because he tells various stories about how he got to Spain. So trying to untangle all of this is a little crazy. But what is pretty obvious is, yeah, she had more than a backpack and a duffel. And she certainly had more than a backpack and a duffel when she got to Barcelona, uh, or excuse me, when she got to Valencia because she had to get from there to Madrid and the car that she is in is packed with luggage, packed, so that there is no room for anybody to sit except practically, her practically in the lap of Ted Allen, who is this nice young journalist who is hitching a ride with her. Yeah. Well, the one person we have not mentioned is Illa Kulkser. She spoke six languages, she had an oppressive husband, and upon meeting Arturo Barria, she attempted to dissolve her marriage by letter. She worked in the censor's office with him. Uh, I'm going to level with you, okay? Aside from being at Baria's side and using her connection with her first husband to escape 
to France in 1938, I really don't have a sense in the book on how she contributed to the Spanish Civil War. I mean, it could very well be that Martha Gellhorn's presence is so rather, is very large. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering if you could help clear this up for me. Well, Ilsa, actually, Martha, this is one of the fascinating things. Yeah. Martha was very taken with Ilsa when she got to Madrid. She, this woman who is totally unlike her, um, she's. Ilsa was a blue stocking from a, uh, a Madrid, uh, from a Viennese Jewish family. She spoke eight languages. She was a political. Oh, eight, not six. Or six, sorry, okay. even numbers. Six, she spoke six languages. And she had. But eight dialects. <laughs> she had this terrible husband um, who turns out to have been a KGB agent. Um, and. Uh, she's on the lamb from him, and she's on the lamb from the rightist government in Vienna, and she's in Madrid trying to help out the the loyalist government. And she and Martha meet because Ilsa's in – she's the one you go to if you want to get it fixed to go to the front, the one you go to if you want to get a translator, you want to get a car, you want to get this, a pass for this, you go to Ilsa. And – and Martha was very impressed by this, and she was impressed by Ilsa's power and her even-handedness and her courage, um, which I think, you know, Martha was a pretty brave cookie herself. She really did not flinch when bombs were coming down, and they, you know, let us hand it to her and really to everybody else in this book. They were all physically about as brave as you could be. I can't imagine how they lived with what they lived with. Yeah. But she thought Ilsa was just an amazingly courageous person. Uh, what Ilsa did was to be, among other things, instrumental in formulating this policy that of openness of in the census office. Yeah. She was the one who said, we should. We are absolutely not going to be doing this thing. More than we, Bardia? Well, she is the one who persuaded him yeah. to do it. Because he thought you should open up, but he, he was kind of timid about it. And she was this kind of can-do woman, and she just goes, they're saying, what are you talking about? You're going to just let them do this. I, I'm just, you know, man up here. Yeah. And that's what she did. She was that kind of person. She just was, she was a tough cookie. Basically, without her, Baria would not have made any decisions, essentially. I, it's quite possible. I think, I don't want to say that she wore the pants in the family. She didn't. Um, but he was, he was this guy, you know, he's, here he is, he's a Spaniard. He comes from a family that is very traditional. He's had a wife. He's had a mistress. None of them. He he kept wanting to meet a woman that he could talk to about stuff that he thought was important, and they would all go, "What? Are you crazy? You talk about that with your boyfriends down in the bar. I am going to go talk with my girlfriends about how to do my hair and what sort of clothes to buy." And this was driving him insane. So he meets Ilsa, who wants to talk about politics and other things with him, and he can hardly believe his good luck. Yeah. And uh, so she and she encouraged him to be the guy that you know he always could have been, but never was, I think. Yeah. So in reading your book, two things actually happened to me. First, I had an overwhelming desire to read all sorts of massive books about the Spanish Civil War. But the second thing, which of course I'm going to have to do later, but the second thing that actually I thought was, wow, there seem to be, you know, modest parallels between what's going on in the Ukraine right now. Uh, especially because recently, as of today, there was a basically a press gagging law in which any 
blogger who uh, has at least three thousand visitors now has to fact check and to uh, to basically withhold their their uh, opinions uh, and 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 basically allow the Russian government to look at it. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, since you have done quite a, a good deal of uh, work on the Spanish Civil War, if if there are any specific things about the Civil War that you can actually uh, look into the Ukraine and and actually draw a parallel. Well, to. in fact, I this is really a case of everything old is new again. Yeah. Um, going back to the Syrian civil war, going yeah. back to Arab Spring yeah. and what was going on in Egypt, uh, there is an awful lot of similarities between what happened in the Spanish Civil War and what's happening now. And in the Ukraine, what you're seeing is not only like what many people said, which was it was like the Germans going into the Sudetenland and saying, oh, oh, these Sudeten Germans, they're all being penalized and it's terrible for them and we have to go in and protect them. Um, and, oh, hello, we just annexed Czechoslovakia. Yeah. How did that happen? Um, this is what's what's happening in, this, in the Crimea. Um, but you also now have this censorship. You have uh, this gag rule, as you're pointing yeah. out. All of that's going on. And in the Spanish Civil War, you had exactly the same thing going on. One of the things that was fascinating is that as in Syria, where you have people tweeting what's really going on, what was happening in Spain was not journalists so much as photographers. The photographers could get the word out. What they did, it was very much, it was, it was a different technology. They took their film, they gave it to a pilot who was flying out of Spain, yeah. and the guy flies out with the film. No censor ever sees it. Nobody ever looks at it. Nobody ever pays any attention to it. And then the next thing you know, it's all over the newspapers in France or Germany or Holland or... It's basically Instagram yeah. in slow time. It's, it is yeah. exactly that. It's Instagram in slow time. And, you know, so we're... That's what we're seeing. It's the same thing happening, but just on a different scale or in a different so, technology So if, if we're going to go ahead and make this parallel, who would be the Gellhorn or the Hemingway or any well, of these types? I don't types? know. Do we have one? That's the thing. Do I mean... I don't think we have a Hemingway yeah, now. I we don't. certainly... We, we, I don't think you have any writer who has the celebrity that writers had in the 30s. Yeah. I just don't think we have anybody with that kind of world celebrity. A movie star, maybe. Yeah. You know? I mean, there were movie stars then going to Spain, like Errol Flynn went to Spain. Uh, Neil Gaiman, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, but, I mean, yeah, yeah. Neil Gaiman, but he, but he's not political, and he's not going to yeah. write about that kind of so thing. So you just, it's, it's, it's a difference of magnitude. Or, or J.K. Rowling or something. Yeah, right. If J.K. Rowling went to, went to the Crimea, well, there you go. What would that be like? Um, you <laughs> That's just a strange you... <laughs> notion. <laughs> Never thought I'd think of that. <laughs> Goblets of fire. Um, gee, but it's, it's a different. It's just a different uh, world. In that sense, yeah. um, but but on the other hand, we do have as Gerda Taro was killed in Spain. We see photographers dying in Iraq. We see photographers dying in Syria. I mean, look at what happened to Marie Colvin, or recently uh, Matthew Power. Too. And Ma yeah, absolutely. So you have all of that going on. Um, we don't, uh, unfortunately, history doesn't get much better. Well, that's a very glum note to end on, but I think it's appropriate. <laughs> Amanda, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you.